Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning in to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler. Her newest book is This Is All I Got, A New Mother's Search for Home. It tells the story of Camilla, who is 22 years old and a new mother. She has no family to rely on, no partner, and no home. Despite her intelligence and determination, the odds are firmly stacked against her. In this extraordinary work of literary reportage, Lauren Sandler chronicles a year in Camilla's life, from the birth of her son to his first birthday, as she navigates the labyrinth of poverty and homelessness in New York City. In her attempts to secure a safe place to raise her son and find a measure of freedom in her life, Camilla copes with dashed dreams, failed relationships, the desolation of abandonment, and miles of red tape with grit, humor, and uncanny resilience. It's a great book, and I had a great time talking with Lauren about it. I give you Lauren Sandler. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here, Scott. You have written a, a book, um, This Is All I Got, A New Mother's Search for Home. And I can tell you, this is like, reading it, I, there, I do not know the last time I felt this emotional reading something. I mean, this is a, a story that is so compelling. It's, it's, it's a story of a homeless woman who you met, you call her Camilla, I assume to protect her kind of identity, but she's a real person that you followed from a year from the birth of her son to his first year of age. And she's homeless in New York City. And you tell this, her story with such uh, depth and, and insight and compassion. I wonder, is it is this messy for you as a journalist? Because it's you're clearly connected to this woman. I mean, is is it hard to keep the boundaries straight? I mean, would you would you, like would you call her a friend now? I mean, how it, it seems like a messy, hard relationship to to negotiate and navigate as a journalist. It's so messy. It's so messy on so many levels, um, and it has gone through many different phases. Um, you know, initially it felt a little simpler in the early days when I was just spending a lot of time reporting, you know, I was, I'm a journalist and she's the protagonist of my book. Um, and I was hanging out and observing and taking notes, but. Yeah, and you can describe it. You ask some people like anyone, anyone tell me your story. And she's kind of like, I will. Um, and, and, and so it's not as though you picked her out of a crowd. I mean, she kind of picked you out of a crowd. I mean, right. Actually, why don't we back, why don't we talk about that? And then I'll, I'll get into the whole mess. Um, so I, I wanted to write about homelessness, um, and city shelters in New York would not allow journalists in. They still won't. Um, that's a whole other issue, which is, I think a real issue, you know, it's this massive tax supported institution that never gets any oversight from the public because security at the front or just like, if you're a journalist, they just don't like, how, how do they do that? I mean, well, I mean, for a project like this, you would call and request access and that sort of thing. But no, I mean, you can't just walk into a shelter. Um, and so th there's a whole long process to get admitted into a shelter, and it's for people who need shelter there. Um, 
And it's it's a very long, complicated process in which. So why don't they let journalists have access? I mean, that seems like bizarre. Like, right. Of course. Um, so I think that there are a number of reasons. I think that there's to protect the privacy of people in shelters. I think there's um, beyond that, the notion that if the public were aware of what actually happens in our underfunded, overtaxed poorly run shelters, there would be an outcry. Um, I think also on a different level, you know, shelters are are things that already provoke anxiety for homeless people. Um, there's the sense that maybe it's not the safest place to be. Um, that's why we see street homelessness, because shelters seem to be an inferior option for a lot of people. That's how bad they can be. Um, I don't think that people want that's that. A that's a remarkable statement. Yeah. Yeah, that that you would choose the street over a shelter. What? Like, what well, why so in New York City, we're one of the few places um, that has a right to shelter mandate. That means that anyone who can prove that they really need a shelter for the night has access to a shelter. Um, it's an unusual law, and it is a very powerful one. It means that. Legally, no one should need to sleep on the streets of New York City, and yet 4,000 people do every night. And that's a pre-pandemic number. That's before we are going to start taking into account the 1.5 million New Yorkers who just lost their jobs and can't pay rent. Um, but beyond that number, there's another... 60,000 people who sleep every night in city shelters and then thousands more like Camilla who sleep in private shelters. Um, you know, there are over, there were over 70,000 homeless people in New York before the pandemic hit. Um, can you, can you just, with the private shelter you're talking about? Yeah. Like, uh, there's shelters that are run by churches. Um, okay, okay. So the church that, I mean, I'm sorry, the shelter where I reported in Brooklyn was initially founded by an order of Franciscan nuns. Um, and you now the Franciscans, you, you gotta, gotta love the, the Franciscans. I know there's really nothing like them. Um, but it also sort of, it begs this interesting question of what happens when orders like the Franciscan nuns lose their numbers and lose their funding as they have over the past decades. Um, and the secular world doesn't rush in to fill that void, which frankly, it should have been filling all along. I mean, that's actually kind of the topic of my first book, which is about the young Christian right and about how so much of this country depends on the church to provide what the secular state provides elsewhere. That's it's amazing, right? Too, you read like the U.S. the U.S. Catholic bishops, like twenty years before FDR's, you know, uh, New Deal. So, I mean, the U.S. Catholic bishops are pushing for something like the New Deal. <laughs> I right. mean, they're kind of saying like, of we should have this governmental government should be doing this kind of caretaking. It's yeah. amazing that that was the kind of forethought there. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I think of this book as being an incredibly Christian book. Um, and I say that, you know, in the purest sense of that word, um, you know, this is a book about what it means for the neediest people to have the least um, and to have the least hope and how I believe that we anyone who is not in that category of need, I believe, has been complicit in this. Um, and that's that's a heavy it's a heavy thing to carry um, and it's going to get a lot heavier. So 
obviously private organizations have created a social service infrastructure that the state hasn't, right? So there are tons of private not-for-profits, private shelters, et cetera. I think in this moment, we're about to see a major de-investment in that private social structure. And we are going to find simultaneously how ill-equipped our public one has been all along um, to deal with the crises that have already existed and, of course, what is about to come. And when I when I reported this book, so, you know, the book is a urinal in the life of this woman I call Camilla. It begins with her going into labor in her private shelter um, and ends with her son's first birthday. But that was reported five years ago. I've known her for the past five years. Um, you know, we, we decided together that that level of access to her life for one year was enough. That was intense enough. Um, and that beyond that, her life would be private. I was would still know her. Um, I would still be involved in her life. Um, when was the last time you saw her? I last saw her, let's see, in February, January or February. Um, I mean, I would have so kind of pre-lockdown. I mean, yeah, pre-lockdown. Yeah, pre-lockdown. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and when was the last time you talked with her? She and I texted three days ago and I texted with her husband yesterday. Um, you know, so... I will just say within the messiness of this relationship, um, we have a lot of threads going right now, but they are all weaving together, I think, in this conversation. You know, it's really hard to be written about. Um, it's hard for anyone to be written about. It's hard for celebrities to have um, publicist-approved profiles in glossy magazines. It's a, it's a vulnerable thing to be written about. I have both written about people and been written about myself. And it, it always feels like a, a place where there's some loss of control. Um, and especially- Yeah, it's funny, it's funny you say that because I, um, I almost never do, I do... I've done a ton of podcast interviews. I almost never do um, guests spots uh, because I I think I'm a terrible guest <laughs> and I know what a good host should do but and at was, least I, when you're on a podcast you're representing yourself you're not exactly, yeah, but, right and even that else etc and even that I went on a friend's podcast um and I I, I mean I I just think I was not a great, I mean, I thought I was doing communicating well, but he's just like, you just weren't vulnerable enough. You weren't like, I, in, 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 so I, so I, think, I think it is hard like because you, it, it's hard to become, to go from the subject of the story to the object of the story where somebody else is. And that is, word is kind vulnerability of story. is a key word. And so this book is about an extraordinarily vulnerable year in the life of an extraordinary vulnerable person. And, um, you know, I'm not going to get too much into this because I'm so intent on protecting her privacy, but her experience of reading the book has been one in which I think she feels quite vulnerable about having this out in the world. Um, and so that's been something to navigate. Um, that is part of the messiness of this relationship. Um, before this book was a thing that was going to be out in the world, when it was something that was drafts and conversations and observation and that process, I think it felt less real to her, um, than what it meant to actually hold the book in her hand as a, you know, as a printed thing. And so, um, and I mean that as a metaphor and otherwise, and so, you know, I, I think that she at the moment is is thinking about her relationship to me and the complications of that. Um, you know, in the book, I, I write a lot about the messiness of our relationship. When you say the complications of that, do, is it, 
you think there's a distancing? Cause she's like, look, I mean, this is a weird thing. And now you've put the, my life stories out there and like, I, I, I can I trust you? Do I, I don't know. Like, it's, it's, is right. it, isn't it a weird kind of thing? Too much into how we have been communicating. Cause it's really important to her that I keep that private, but I will sure, say, sure, sure, um, sure. within the book, um, and since you've read it and I so appreciate that you have and everything that you said about it, it means a lot to me, um, that you felt it. And I hope that other people will too. You know, you know, now that I write a lot about the complications of what it means to have this relationship, because I am not someone who simply sits back with my notebook. I'm also not someone who, you know, sits down to interview, you know, my whole, mode of reporting here was to just spend an enormous amount of time with her. And when you are two people spending an enormous amount of time together, especially when you're people who have the chemistry and alchemy and care for each other that we both do, I think that it can get a little bit fuzzy about where those boundaries are. Um, And this is something I've been discussing with other journalists for the past several years when I've been working on this book. You know, there are moments that I write about For example, when her baby was, you know, freezing cold and she had asked her father for a snowsuit for her son, Alonzo, um, for Christmas. And I knew that her father was not going to buy Alonzo a snowsuit. He had let her. And and her father, you said her father, her her father has several kids from several different with several different mothers. Her mother was abusive. I mean, so you see this, the resilient, her was Camilla's, Camilla's resilience is exceptional and believable. And in light of, I mean, the challenges she began life with are just unbelievable and unbearable. I mean, when I met her, she was a force of nature, truly, um, with such charisma and tenacity, um, the most incredible legal mind. I mean, we're talking about someone who sued her parents for child support as a teenager, right? Um, who, when she was put in foster care in Staten Island and couldn't stand where she was um, housed and couldn't stand commuting to her high school in Manhattan. She rented her own room with the job she had at the supermarket and graduated high school early. I mean, like this is a phenomenal woman. Um, and yet to watch her suffer the way that I did over the year that I spent with her and to watch things happen in front of me, like the possibility of her, you know, baby freezing because he didn't have a snowsuit. Well, that didn't need to be a part of my narrative. Like, yes, I needed to see how she was going to make her way through the system, how she could save herself um, in such a horrendous um, situation that is New York City, that is the, you know, that is the United States of America during a time of unprecedented prosperity. In Were you tempted to save her yourself or was there ever a point where you're just like, I'll just put her on my couch or like, I'll just say, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that would be the challenge, right? Because like, yeah. you're... So you're someone with resources and in the book where there's, there's a period of time in which it is really unclear where she's going to be able to sleep next. And, you know, my family at this point was very close to her. My daughter was eight at the time and, and was absolutely furious with me that I was not saying, yes, they can come stay with us. And as I write in the book, that's my daughter was trying to grasp for this word that she wanted to call me, but she didn't know what it was. And that's when I explained to her what a hypocrite was. And I think that there's some real truth in that. Um, I also know that my job as a journalist was to see what she could make happen on her own next. 
that was what the story of this book was, was watching what she could do, not changing her narrative for her. So there was that aspect of things. But there's also another aspect of things which she understood throughout. I mean, she never asked to stay on my couch. Part of that was because of some rules and boundaries that we set early on, but also because she, as much as anyone, understood that this was a systemic issue. This wasn't something that I could solve, um, that my you know, middle-class stability was not something that could then be the repair for the rest of her life, that the things that she needed were things that we need a far larger force to provide. We need to see that housing is a human rights issue. We need to, you know, determine that there is no person in this country who should be living much less raising a baby without a roof over their head, without a safe, stable place to live. Because as any of the women I met at the shelter could tell you, that is the most foundational need. Um, there are lots of other needs too, but without stable housing, nothing can happen. Um, and that wasn't, you know, I couldn't rent an apartment for her. Um, I couldn't pay for her childcare. You know, like these were things that I was already going into my savings to be able to write this book. It's something that I, I became a journalist to write 20 something years ago. And my own life was only stable enough financially to take the risk to write a book like this in my 40s, which is you know, another crazy thing about how work like this is not funded, not that common. I mean, you know, I was waiting to get an advance from Random House that could continue to pay me to do some of this work. But, um, you know, this is not there used to be sort of a golden age of reporting um, in which work like this was far more common and far better funded. Um for yeah, example, I mean, the New, York, I the New York Times, right, is one of the few papers that actually still has a full staff of reporters. I mean, the, the, on on right. all these different beats. I mean, you, in the Washington and there's Post, an extraordinary to, reporter named Nikita Stewart who writes about homelessness. But for contrast, you know, writing about homelessness, Nikita's one of the only people who writes about it, and it's a huge job. It used to be when I moved to New York in 1992 for college. Um, there were about 20,000 people sleeping in New York shelters instead of 60,000. And during that era, the homelessness was considered to be a national crisis. And there was an average of one to two stories about homelessness every single day in the New York Times. That's how homelessness was covered then. Um, there were there was a slew of books um, that came out in this sort of golden age of reporting around poverty. And they're just they're harder to pull off right now there isn't finding I, I remember, value for them in the same I remember way. seeing a, somebody show a clip of even donald trump in the 90s or something saying that the homelessness was a crisis in new york that the federal government needed to interact donald trump even said that well i do wonder where he was coming from on that um I'm sure that he he was more interested in the eyesore than the actual experience of the people who were homeless. Um, after all, his own family was quite le legendary for denying housing or <laughs> or evicting people who they considered to be below who they wanted to have in their own dwellings. Um, but I'm sure yeah, it's, York, it's a we, we, time. York, we have the we have the best homeless. We've got the best homeless. We're the best. <laughs> and, Trump, and Trump Tower, the people that sleep in front of Trump Tower are the yes. best homeless. We only have the best homeless uh, in front of Trump Tower. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I wonder if Camilla's his type. So... <laughs> 
but you know, it's, it's all, it's pretty brutal. Um, it's, it's, um, it's an experience that obviously witnessing it has, has nothing on experiencing it oneself. Um, I, I would hardly say that sitting in welfare um, offices with Camilla waiting to see if her case was going to be closed or not is the same thing as having one's case closed. Um, yeah, and you tell a story in the book where she actually sits down in in an office in, in one of the sort of government assistance offices and sits in urine and she thinks, okay, do I go to the bathroom and clean myself up at the risk of losing my place in line? Well, it's it's on the floor below her chair, but yes. Right, right. <laughs> That may be a small detail. I mean, this is one of these basic questions. You show up in one of these offices. You have to wait in the room until your number's called. You wait for hours and hours and hours and hours. And if you need to pee, like, tough luck, you might miss your number. This is the sort of just typical experience of what it means to navigate the social service system, which millions of Americans are about to discover firsthand if they haven't already. In your book, I mean, I, when I read this book, I think like, yeah, I, you hear war described as, as these long, long periods of boredom punctuated by sheer terror, right? Like the, the experience of being a soldier in a, in a combat theater. And that's, that's what you describe in Kimmel's experience is these long, monotonous, like train rides and waits and waits punctuated by sheer terror. Like it's either monotony and sitting there in these endless bureaucratic kind of you know, rigmarole and this and waiting, 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 punctuated by these moments where your baby's freezing. I mean, it's just, it, it, it seems like warfare is, uh, is almost, it's the analogy I, I, I think I, I of actually, when I, I, when I read it. I thought about that analogy, but I think you're really right. And it's funny, having lived through it with her, to me, there was a lot of that boredom to experience. I mean, you know, we had each other, so that we were always together and connected and talking. So that, that made a big difference. But, you know, for me, the experience of this book was very much waiting all the time. And then yes, of course, waiting in crisis, waiting in crisis. And it's been really interesting to talk to people who've read the book since it came out a week ago, who talk about the suspense of the book and how they can't put it down. And I keep thinking, wow, what a different experience reading this than it is um, reporting it. Because you know, I guess I suggest those moments of boredom in between the moments of crisis, but um, but it is interesting to me that it's it's such a suspenseful read for people, considering how those moments would often be actually kind of few and far between. It always felt like rolling crisis, but this bizarre crisis of, I mean, I often think about it in terms of experimental theater. I, I Like it's all a big Beckett play where it's all, you know, absurdity and, and crisis and self-denial and magical thinking. And it just sort of, you wait and wait and wait and wait. And then once in a while, there's like some major event that happens and it restarts the cycle again. It's a totally surreal way to live, but total reality for so many Americans. When you're in the shelters with Camilla, like, do you stand at, or, or, or I'm not even thinking of the shelters, I'm thinking of the government agencies, like, where she's seeking assistance. Do you stand out like a sore thumb? I mean, are you kind of like, 
do, do, do you look like a reporter or do you look like a privileged person? I mean, is are people looking at you like, why do you have this privileged white person with you walking? I mean, it, it, do you stand out in that sense? Well, you'd think I would, right? Um, a funny thing about Camilla is she and I actually look a bit alike. You know, she's Dominican. I'm Jewish, but we have similarly textured hair, similar facial structures. Our skin is a pretty similar tone. And so and I'm actually the same age as her mom, um, who was very young when she had her. And so people would often think that I was her mother or they would think that I was her social worker. No one ever thought that I was a reporter. Um and I certainly, you know, I did this as more investigative work than showing up and saying, hi, I'm Lauren Sandler. I'm writing a book. Um, I would just go in with her and sit with her. Um, and, you know, I would often. Were, were, you, were, you, were you conscious of what you would wear? Like, I'm mean, just thinking, like, as you're getting ready for the day and dressing, like, are you thinking, yeah, okay, yeah, I, 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 I don't want to be I overly, would... like, style. I don't want to be overly stylish right, yeah. or. Well, so, I mean, Camilla and I actually have somewhat similar styles. She's actually a little bit preppier than I am. So even that, like, you know, we never looked like we shouldn't be together. If anything, she was just, she had a manicure and I didn't, you know, it would always sort of be a moment like that where, oh, she would look like she often spent more time on her makeup than I did. But other than that, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm someone who's I don't know. I wear a lot of vintage clothing. That's a little unusual for people who you see in those spaces. So I guess I would maybe intentionally try to dress neutral. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm a person who lives in Brooklyn. So I look like other people who live in Brooklyn and I don't look like a fancy person who lives in Brooklyn. So I don't know. It's, it's hard. Are to... you thinking when she shows up with a manicure, like, are you thinking like, how do you have time to like, it, that's amazing with the stressors that's on her, that are on her life. I mean, is that sort of her armor? Like for her, like is, is the sort of put together preppy manicured makeup look like this is my armor to face the world. Well, I, this is actually something that I end up um, writing about in the book. You know, the only time I've ever been so self-conscious of my absence of a pedicure was showing up at the shelter and open toe shoes. Um, there wasn't a woman in that shelter who wasn't impeccably groomed. Um, and I think that part of that is because these are relatively inexpensive things to do that can make you feel okay about yourself. Um, you know, there's also this, there's a real division between, for example, the soup kitchen that was downstairs from the shelter and the women who lived in the shelter upstairs, they would refer to the bums downstairs in the soup kitchen. It's true that they were also homeless, but, you know, they were homeless in ironed H&M outfits or, you know, occasionally a new weave. Um, when Camilla could afford it, she would go to the nail salon in Corona, where the one that she knew growing up and everyone would be excited to see her. And it was the only time that I had my nails regularly done because she insisted on it. Um, these are just small things that it's not enough of, um, of a price to buy a bottle of nail polish at CVS or to even get a, a discount pedicure once in a while, that amount of money isn't going to determine whether or not you get housing. 
or whether or not you can stay in school or, you know, these are, these are tiny, tiny expenses that give people a sense of control. And frankly, these are also people who have phones and look at Instagram and there's a, a bar for who you're supposed to be as a young woman in the world, um, what you're supposed to look like, what, what self-respect looks like. Um, and so I also write about- This is amazing that in this country, you could be, have Instagram and an iPhone and be homeless. Like oh. there's something that like, that, and, and I think like, that's not, this is the late stages, I guess, of sort of uh, degenerate capitalism or something like in a country like ours, that, that, that this is not a disconnect for people that like, no, okay, and in fact, you know, she can express herself in this, but she doesn't need a house. I mean, whatever, right. she'll right, be right. fine. But think about what's happening right now where, you know, state institutions, welfare offices, you know, food stamp offices, you name it, are all closing down so that people can do all of this remotely right now. That's how people are uh, applying for unemployment for the most case. You know, the way that people do that is through a computer or a phone. If you don't have a computer or a phone, you're completely shut out. There are many people who are homeless who may have a computer or a phone, but don't have a phone plan. And that that's a lot of people I've known where you could use Wi-Fi, but you could only use Wi-Fi, you know, outside a library or at Starbucks, et cetera. So that entire infrastructure is now gone. So what is a phone without Wi-Fi if you have no phone plan? Shelters aren't funded to provide Wi-Fi for people. And so we have a class of people who are now being, you know, systematically eliminated from the right to even apply for their own benefits or manage their own cases because they don't have access to the technology because of their poverty. Um, and that is a rolling issue that we're going to see more and more and more. It was one thing to be able to always use your phone on the subway where there was Wi-Fi. Now the subway isn't safe. What are we going to do? You know? Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting because like, you, know, you think of, of the, of, you know, cardiologists, right. And if you have a cardiological issue, you, you get the stress test, right. I guess they put you on a treadmill and see like, what. I mean, I, it, it's, it's almost as if like the Corona pandemic has shown like we're failing the stress test maybe like we don't we don't have a we don't have an approach societally to deal with something like this like right the, and it's, I show, it's the, showing the, the income inequality that the you know the, the the effects of inequality and also like just how poorly it seems that we're equipped to deal with um mass suffering and poverty and 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 things that you know again happen when the slings and hairs of outrageous fortune in the world just hit us and it just seems like we're really ill-equipped for this but you know to really work that analogy these are underlying conditions that the pandemic has exposed to plenty of people who already knew that they existed. And that to me is the real tragedy of this is this isn't news. We've known all along how broken the system is. We've known all along how inequality has been, you know, a vastly increasing crisis that we have not been addressing. Um, like we've seen the numbers go up and up and up and, I think that part of the reason that we have been inured to what those numbers mean is because we only see them as data points. You know, you hear 60,000 homeless people in shelters, 70,000 
homeless people in um, in New York City. That's just a vast number. That is not something that we experience as 70,000 different lives, 70,000 different ambitions, 70,000 different traumas, you know, 70,000 different desires. Because we get so few stories about how this life is lived, how life under the line is lived, I think that it's really difficult for people to internalize and relate to any of this. I mean, I defy anyone who reads this book to not relate to Camilla and to Camilla's desires and ambitions. They're just like anyone else's. No, and I mean, she seems like someone... Yeah, she seems like someone I'd want to spend time with. I mean, like, that's what I was thinking. It's like, this is a remarkable... I think of the Stalin quote, right? One death, 10 deaths. Those are tragedies. A million deaths is a Mm -hmm. statistic. Like, and, 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 and this is, it's the, it's the statistical like phenomena, right? That we just file it in, in the file folder of statistic. And so it doesn't, I'm curious, do you think like for Camilla, right? She has this college boyfriend kind of guy that is the father of her child. And, uh, do you, do you think like it would have gone different for her if she would not have gotten pregnant? Like, would it, do you think she, I mean, do you think that would have been an easier, I mean, her, her, obviously she has a road that most people could not endure, but do you think like the, the tracks would have been greased for navigating it more easily had she not gotten pregnant? Yeah. And I mean, I say this as someone who loves her kid. So, you know, this is me not wishing that Alonzo <laughs> did not exist. Um, he's a little boy who I, um, am quite in love with, um, did but she that, consider abortion? I mean, what about the, the the abortion conversation? I mean, how is that? How did that play out? And you're you're there with her in this time. Well, so I I mean, I met her when she was definitely past the point of um, of being able to make that choice. It is a choice that she that she deliberated quite a bit. Um, she had two appointments at Planned Parenthood that. She canceled the first one, didn't show up for the second one. Um, You know, she had a cousin who told her that she had regretted her own abortion um, every day since then. You know, I, I think... I think that there are a couple things in play here. One is fear of regret around an abortion and a culture that does not support that choice for a woman, um, which also gets us back to the Franciscan nuns. I mean, the only group that was really helping her out when she was pregnant was a, a group of sisters on the Upper East Side who, when you walk into their nunnery in a brownstone, the first thing you see when you open the door shelves of anti-abortion literature. Um, um, and so there's that aspect of things. I think there's also the aspect which Camilla and I talked about a lot, which is that she didn't want to be alone. And she felt like once she yeah. had a baby, she would have her own family and like yeah. a family that she could make, not the family that she was born into that she felt so hurt by. Um, so there was that element, but yes, having a baby changed everything. I mean, just think about it when you, when it's just you, you can crash on a friend's couch very, very differently. When it's just you, you can rent a room in a an apartment of roommates that you find on Craigslist. And if you are a neat, respectful person who can pay the rent on time um, and doesn't leave your dishes in the sink, doesn't eat other people's food in the fridge, you're golden, right? But imagine being the person who has a colicky baby who's applying for that same room. That was something that she found out time and time again, was that she could not rent a room in an apartment through Craigslist because no one would want a baby. She even, you know, 
often couldn't rent through other um other channels because as she found trying to move into an apartment in the Bronx, the landlord said, I don't want a welfare mother in my apartment. So she didn't get it. You you point out something in the book that like I this blew me away that section eight housing, there's like ten thousand vouchers or something available in New York. And so basically you said like in 2008, they stopped taking new applications. So to get Section 8 housing, you basically are waiting for someone to die. You've been on the list for years and years and years, and you're just hoping someone dies and, you, and you're next in line, right? Pretty much. Um, yeah, I think that there's this notion. I mean, there's even... It's in the book, too. There's a moment when we go talk to a social worker who just says, well, apply for Section 8 to her. And she has to say, yeah, Section 8 has not taken a new application for the past, you know, since 2008. At that time, when she was given that advice, it had been eight years prior. Um, you know, Section 8 came about because both the state and academics alike agreed, and they still do, that the best way to maintain stability for people and the best way to avoid homelessness is through housing vouchers. This is something that has been known for decades and only gathers more data in its support. And yet, because we don't fund that system, because we don't consider that to be something of value, um, it's just not possible for people. The, the end of Section 8 for new applicants in New York City is directly related to the massive rise in homelessness here. And we can say the same thing for other voucher programs maxing out elsewhere around the country. And, you know, when I think about the stimulus package, when I think about the trillion dollars that we could just sign over. Um, we shoveled out the door. We shoveled. Yeah, right. Airlines. You know, there, there's a number that's also pretty accepted, which is that it would take 20 billion dollars to end homelessness in the United States. To literally end all homelessness in the in the United States, we could build shelters. We could build like dorms. We could build like all sorts of apartments. We could have all sorts of different kinds of housing. Permanent housing. You could build terrific apartments for people and give them vouchers for for that housing and have a whole structure around that. It would be twenty billion dollars, which is a huge amount of money. But then you think about what it means to have a trillion dollar stimulus package, or when you think about what it means to have those twenty billion dollars gathered in the upper echelon of our billionaires' bank accounts, and it's—I mean, it's nothing. Like, and it, it would, those those would drop down to having ninety billion dollars if he, you know, if he provided twenty billion dollars to end homelessness, and then homelessness would be over. Yeah, and it wouldn't be revenue neutral. It'd probably be revenue. I mean, I remember on Freakonomics they were talking about the study where, like, they were where they integrated housing stuff with with you know families that were in transitional and low income is, and put them in these good housing situations. And they're like, basically you get it all back in taxes. So like mm-hmm. if you have someone that's homeless who can't really, is struggling to get a job, struggling to function. And, so, but, and then you give them like a furnished apartment or something, right? Well, all of a sudden they're not stressed. They're not, uh, they're less prone to um, substance abuse issues. They're more prone to go get to to have, oh, I can get a job because I have some place to sleep. Like so, the, just the tax. I mean, the the way that this would balance out, it, mm-hmm. it, I, I think people look at this as if, oh my gosh, we're just it would pay for itself. Yeah. In, in 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 the the fact that the government services, 
And it's funny because this is the argument, right, that Mnuchin and all these people are using for the the stimulus. Well, you know, it, it, for every stimulus check we write, it's, it, 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 we're saving on unemployment, on this and that. And it, well, this is the, the, the – why don't we have the same mindset with homelessness? For, like we could spend this money and then just big picture, the alleviation of – um, stress on the government services stuff would be remarkable, right? I mean, it, 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 would, it would propel people into a possibility for relative prosperity in their own stories. Absolutely. And in this moment when, you know, there is going to be such an issue for people in construction, um, who have lost their jobs, when we think about architects who have lost their jobs, when we think about engineers who have lost their jobs, um, you know, when we think about lumber suppliers, I mean, just think about what it would mean in terms of developing this infrastructure, in terms of job creation. Um, I mean, this could be a moment, this could be part of a New Deal moment coming out of this crisis, where such a small investment could transform not just the lives of people who desperately need housing, but also the people who can be employed to build that housing, to, you know, to run programs within that housing, to think about what world we actually want to live in on the other side of this. Because the one that I witnessed writing this book, to me, is the ultimate cautionary tale of what we don't want to go back to. Not that we can go back to a normal, a normal won't exist, but the idea of looking at where we have been as some ideal to return to, this has got to be the moment in which we say, no, I won't I won't allow anyone in this country to live like Camilla has had to, that anyone who, you know, should be going to John Jay College and yet can't because you can't even find a place in a shelter with her baby. That is absolutely, it's it's verboten in this country that anyone who, and it doesn't even just have to be someone with a brilliant criminal justice mind who wants to be a civil servant like she did, people who also have mental health issues who are really struggling to to get by right now in a lot of different ways. I mean, this is a mass trauma. It's going to unravel a lot of people. And we need to value their lives just as much in the same way as we would value a mind like Camilla's or a mind like our own. It's interesting. I, I was listening to Freakonomics last year and they had a thing about like the ideal world or whatever that you're creating. And it's interesting that like they were talking about borders and and the most radical pro-immigration people tend to be these libertarians because they just think like it doesn't make sense for somebody that's got these skills in Haiti to be constrained by a border if if IBM needs them. And, and I wonder if there is a possibility for a consensus between like liberals and libertarians on this, like a, a kind of common sense sense that like that that well-being and the market and, and free markets, free ideas, free people, all these things and, and a good society could all come together and we could build a consensus that, wow, this is one of the few things we can agree on. Like if we solved this problem, if we just took the money and solved this problem, that we, it, it would be an act of, of, of real humanitarian um, compassion and justice. And at the same time, it would, it would prosper the economy because all these people like Camilla who are just incredibly skilled – and just she needs to just get in the market like she needs to be in the marketplace and stable so that she her skills can then be, you know, utilized in 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 the marketplace of the economy or ideas. Or, I mean, it just seems like this is one of the few things where you actually could get some consensus because there's interest you know, on all sides. I I agree absolutely that she should be in the marketplace and stable. No doubt about that. But um, I do think that 
the that free market ideology just goes hand in hand with the unchecked capitalism that got us here. Um, And I think that that's the tricky thing. You know, I think that libertarians in the past used to have far more overlap with progressive mentality. Um, But I do think that as you know, what's so often called late stage capitalism has just sort of rolled over people. That is a train that libertarians have been really, really comfortable to ride. Um, And I think that what we are looking at is the incredible cost of a a boundless society, Um, a society that does not have a moral compass, a society that does not value anything except a market. And that this is what happens is all of our wealth gets concentrated into a small number of bank accounts. And we live in a nation of vast inescapable poverty. And that to me is just never going to be the answer. I think that if we were to totally, you know, flatten out the system, if we were to radically restructure the way that our economy works and how we invest in people, um, you know, with a universal basic income, with massive wealth taxation, et cetera, once the the ship was righted a little bit, we could then say, okay, with certain measures in place, what do we want this to be? Um, But I think that the form of capitalism that has exists literally works for nobody except for the few guys at the top. Yeah, it's interesting. I heard Malcolm Gladwell say a couple years ago on a podcast somewhere, he's like, you know, the thing. The thing with Canadians do with healthcare is we had a conversation. Like this experiment happens in Saskatchewan, and we had a conversation about what we wanted, and we came up with what we wanted. And I think you know it's interesting. I had David French on the show a few weeks ago, and he's he was saying you know this is he was saying something similar. He's like, well, we want something that's universal healthcare, affordable and quality. He's like, well, all right you might have to pick two out of three or two thirds of the three or try to like put together this thing in a way. But I feel like we, we avoid these conversations about priorities and we, we don't, we just kind of say, I, I feel like Americans want to pay no taxes and get great government service. right? Like, like we want to be a tax free state, but we'd really like to have government like Scandinavia. And I, I wonder like, are we becoming ungovernable? And you think about the, 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 the size and diversity of a country like ours, there's no other functional liberal liberal democracy. I mean, you could say India, but I mean, is India how functional is India's democracy right now? Like most of the other states that are this big and this diverse are autocratic, like Russia and China. I mean, I, are we are we just like an ungovernable? Are we are we going to get to the point where we're ungovernable? Well, I mean, I I must say that on a November evening in 2016. <laughs> I did think to myself the phrase, is this the end of the American experiment? And it has certainly occurred to me many times since then. Um, By the way, one one of my favorite Trumpisms is when he says something that he knows, that everybody knows. Most people don't know Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Everybody knows that. (laughs) Who knew healthcare could be so complicated? Everybody knows. It's like most people don't know that I've been treated worse than any other president. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like this, but this is the thing that in the, the sick Woody Allen psychosis that is my brain, I think like, oh my God, but if Trump doesn't get reelected, what am I going to do? Like, I was so sad. This, I am, I, and again, this is really exposing my neurosis to the whole audience. I don't think I've ever been this vulnerable about it. I loved that. I think his staff was 
totally right to them. Stop doing those press briefings every day with the corona. But that was my favorite time of the day. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's he going to say next? It was like, it's just like vaudeville or it's like watching professional wrestling. It was just guilty pleasure. That's awful. And that's why I wonder, will the country like elect him because we're just so, um, pathological and we again it's the late stage it's like that movie what, what did schwarzenegger have that movie um uh uh <laughs> well i was thinking actually i think it was the the film um running man where like they have like arnold schwarzenegger and they put the convicts in and they it's like it's just, it's circus spread stuff from ancient right. rome i wonder if that's how we're I wonder if is that how we're is that where we do what we've degenerated well, i mean i think that into as a country i think that that's that's a good 2015 conversation, which isn't me saying that, you know, you're behind the times, Scott. But I do think that oh, hey, I'm glad I think the that time. the vaudeville of it, the entertainment of it was the normalizing factor. I think that, you know, Lorne Michaels putting Trump on SNL um, repeatedly. I think that, you know, the notion of people feeling like there was finally some fun and reality TV in their politics I think that, that that opened the door for a lot of really ugly, ugly stuff to slide through. And that we are so, so past that point now. Um, and I, I, I see it as, as a crisis that I really hope that we can come back from. Um, I think that that's a really difficult thing to do right now. I think that the, you know, very intentional disinvestment in public education um, is something that really, really stunted critical thinking skills and empathy through a massive part of this country. I think that not investing in people who were unemployed or losing wages or dealing with poverty in other ways um, and instead telling them to go to church and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and blaming other people. I mean, I think that the whole creation of scapegoats is something that we have certainly seen before in history, and it doesn't go well for anyone ever. Um, and it's interesting because the guest I had on uh, the, uh, the previous guest, Ed Watts, I think he was on the show Sunday. Um, he's an ancient historian, and he he's written a whole book that's forthcoming about rise and decline narratives and how in ancient Rome and how the, but he opens up with Trump and the sort of um, carnage speech in the inaugural, which I hear was better in the original German or Italian. I mean, probably Italian, right? I mean, it's probably better. It's probably more Mussolini than Hitler, but, um, but, and then he's put it in the foot. He talks about, no, this isn't just the right. He says, Obama had a kind of rise and decline narrative. He looks at, he looks at, it wasn't as harsh, but it was this kind of thing in 2008. And he says, the problem in ancient Rome is whenever you have a rise and decline narrative, you have winners and losers. You have to blame someone, right? And then you wind up disenfranchising people, taking away their right. And this is, I mean, this is, and I don't know if the tribalism gives birth to the rise and decline or the rise and decline to the tribalism. Because I think in the tribalism we're in, right, we always have to have somebody to blame, right? Somebody always has to be wrong. Like we can't just come together and say, look, we're in a tough place and let's get out of the ditch together, right? It's it's always got to be these people were just in the ditch. They need to be punished. These people are the bad people. And I just don't, this is what I think about the, the, the Corona thing, right? Like we're not going to get a vaccine likely. And I mean, mumps is four years, like, you know, like, so we're going to have to come up with some strategy to deal with reconstructing society in light of no new normal. Um, 
and and how do we do it when we when when we're so tribed out? I, I just I don't know how it happened. Well, I mean, the good news is that we're the richest country in the world, and the bad news is that that isn't money that our country has access to, <laughs> or you know, or an agreement about what to do about it. I mean, I think that this is really, I, I really think a lot about how we shredded our safety net in the best of times, and now we're in the worst of times. I really think about how I reported this book when Obama was president in a time of unprecedented prosperity, and this is how bad it was then. Um, and if that wasn't enough of a warning, you know, I mean, I, I wrote this book to grab people by the lapels and shake them out of their complacency. And now there's no complacency to be shaken out of anymore. There's nothing but tragedy and trauma. Um, and I think that we need to deeply understand what it means to live a life outside of sort of dominant narratives of America in order to to experience something that will still grab us by the lapels and say, we don't have to accept this. We don't have to decide that this is all our democracy is good for. We don't have to tolerate that this is a society that will allow lives like Camilla's to be lived like this. And now, you know, 20 million more in the past, you know, how many people implied, have applied for unemployment in the past six weeks? 20 million people, 22 million people. I mean, that, that number is just going to go up and up and up with no end in sight right now. Like one would think that the opportunity of a crisis would be an ability to re, you know, to take stock, to reset, to do what, you know, some people are now referring to as build back better thinking, you know, like what, what are we actually going to do next? Um, if we do need to do something, cause we do, um, what will that be and how can we feel how it matters? I mean, I think that it's interesting how much I value history tremendously. Um, I'm dying to read Ed's book when it comes out. I, you know, I, I, I really think that going back to crises of the past are essential. But I, also, I'm going to start having, a, I'm going to start having power panels on the show. Oh, let's do it. I want to be on with them this because is, this is my, things... this is my new power panel. Lauren Sandler, <laughs> Ed Watts. That would be the greatest. Lady. Please, please, please. I'm totally down for that because for me, one of the questions is, you know, there's such a distancing that happens with history. There's such um, there's something self-protecting about allegory, right? We get to kind of feel smarter than the moment, or we get to feel predictive about it, or by looking to the past, etc. But I think that it's really crucial that we also look at lives being lived out right now. And I think that those tend to be, you know, often less popular stories to tell, less sort of trendy narratives, less impressive at dinner parties when, remember, we used to have dinner parties. Um, you know, or, or sit at a bar. Like, you're not going to sit at a bar and talk about the story of one homeless mother. You're going to talk about Nero. Nero is going to be important at a bar, right? Um, so when we can next be in bars or for opportunities like this one, like this podcast, ways to connect us in conversation, I think it's really important that as we are doing right now, and as I so value you inviting me on the show to do, that we also really talk about real people living real lives in this very real moment. I don't think that we should insulate ourselves from it. And, and the thing about your book, I think, Camilla, like, I mean... This should be the book that, like, if I were a pro-life person, like a pro-life, like, activist, I would be pushing this book because it 
because it shows the value of every human life. And, and this, and, and her story is so emblematic of human resilience and the capacity to, um, learn and love and struggle and, 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 and actually, you know, be in the midst of the chaotic lack of control and be an agent. I mean, this is, I mean, this, it is, it's part of the beauty of your writing. It's just that like, this is the best argument for the sacred nature of every single life because I mean, her her life, her life radiates. She shines. Also, I think it is also an incredible argument for the importance of legal, funded, well-accessed abortion because right, right, yeah, right, 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 right. You know, because she should get to choose what to do with her life, you know, and what it means to choose to become a single mother in poverty is a tough choice to make. Granted, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be great to see one of those debate Ted those debate like I forget the the debate forum podcast where they said is Sandler's book pro life or pro choice? <laughs> I would be fascinated by that. But it is, but it, but it is. I mean, it is. You you do you do lift up the sacredness of stories, and I think that that's really important. And, and to show like that, you know, this is like James Joyce, right? Like James Joyce writes Ulysses to say, look, the life of some damn Irishman in Belfast who's in late modernity and existentially tortured is just as important as this epic character, you know, in ancient Greece and other, and, and I feel like you're kind of doing that. It's like this James Joyce kind of movie, like this person's life is as epic as anything we're teaching in a classics um, course in elite universities. I mean, her life is as, is as storied, interesting and worth um, considering in its particularity, but also in its implications for what it tells us about our stories. And that's the thing that like, I, I think like, oh my God, I think of Augustine there, but for the grace of God, go I. And, and you, and you think of this, it, this could be a, a minister friend of mine says, we're all like, um, two days away and, and three bad or three, three bad decisions and three days away from being a tabloid headline. And he's like, a lot of days I'm on day two. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think that that, but that is life. Right. And so like, it's this kind of thing that like you, you, what I think I appreciate about your work is you kind of demoralize it in, in, in the sense of like, she's just a person like any of us who her circumstances are incredibly challenging. Right. And, and, and this is just, the reality of, of, of the contours of our societal story that she has to be in this. And it doesn't have to be this way is what you're saying. It doesn't have to be this way. I mean, one of the things I write in the book is the sentence, imagine yourself at 22 with no margin of error. I think it'd be so interesting to have a college literature class um, on elements of the canon, like what you're describing, but also elements of books like this in which we just consider what it means to have no margin of error. What, what to learn from the small elements of, of a daily life um, and a life on the line. Cause it's, I think it is powerful. And I, I do agree. I think that every life is epic in some sense. Um, and I certainly do find her journey to be tremendously epic um, as much as it might be lived out on subways and in welfare offices um, and in her room after curfew in the homeless shelter. But to me, it's as epic a life as any other one. Now you said, you said she's married now. Um, is she housed now in a yeah. stable for the month? Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, wow. I, wow. I, um, it is wonderful. It's wonderful that she married for love and that that is what, um, 
what ended up happening for her. It is not wonderful in that her housing stability depended on getting married. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. so on the one hand, I, I think I write in the book about how, how, you know, she gets married and how this isn't a book that has a happy ending because she got married. Like, I'm happy that she married someone who she loves. I love him too. Um, and I was thrilled to be at her wedding and hold her bouquet and make a toast at her wedding. It's nothing I would have done if I didn't feel it totally with my heart. What, what, did, um, you say the, what did you say at the toast? I said that she was um, one of the most brilliant, most tenacious, most remarkable women I'd ever met in my entire life. Uh, Did and you cry? Were you, was it pretty emotional? I mean, oh, yeah. I, I'm tearing up. I'm tearing up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm thinking, how'd you get through it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I felt a lot, but my, but my larger point is as much as I'm glad that that was, you know, that she has that partnership now. I also don't think that her stability should be dependent upon that partnership. We as a country need to make sure that she has that stability, whether that is a stable relationship or not. Because for people in privilege, you know, think of how unstable so many relationships are for people who can afford to be betrayed or betray themselves, who can afford to fall in and out of love, who can afford to make different life choices after a partnership. Um, I want her to be able to have that freedom too, if that's a choice she or her partner might make. And the notion that there is so much more weight put on partnerships for people in poverty than there is for other people that they represent rent, that they represent, you know, stability, that they represent all of these different things that the rest of, you know, of middle class and upper class people can just sort of accept as a right in life. There's something truly messed up about that. And it's happening on our watch. Do you feel like your own kind of like journalistic political commitments are just like, do you ever just sit and like, think America's never going to go the way I want it to go. <laughs> yeah. like, this is just like such a kind of, um, I mean, although we have, again, there have been times where we've collectively acted like and, and, and done big things, but it just seems like uh, people are so, I mean, it, it blows me away. I've, I've, I've talked about this several times in the past few podcasts. The thing that blows me away, George H.W. Bush was 20 points down to Dukakis coming out of his convention and then won a landslide that many Americans were persuadable, you know, and it seems like no one's persuadable anymore. And so it just seems like the, the capacity of us to act in a way that would, that, that, where we could like, it just, it just seems so challenging to imagine us doing some of the bigger things that we've done, that we've were capable of in, in past, and again, with all the sins of, of you know, systemic injustice and racism. I mean, again, I'm not like romancing, romanticizing America's history, but like, but there there were times when people kind of got together and said, "Okay, let's let's do this big thing that's for the common good." And I just, do you wonder, do you worry that we're not capable of that? Oh, I I feel pretty certain most days that we're not capable of that. And all right, kids, um, there we go. Now bedtime. <laughs> all right, kids, get the milk and cookies. Here we go, everybody. There's no hope. <laughs> Here you go. Lauren and I told you, just hunker down. There's no hope. <laughs> but I mean, it's true. There are incredible things that, that this country has stood for in the past and incredible things that people have been able to do together. Um, 
that is true. That is that is in a prior time in which there were a lot of other elements of infrastructure in place, in which there were certain elements of a very black, white, us, them ideology that existed in some ways, certainly existed racially, um, but didn't exist in the same pernicious ways that I think the religious right has spread, that I think, you know, the erosion of our education system has spread. You know, and we frankly didn't live in the same time of vast inequality. Uh, we didn't have, I'm not saying that, you know, <laughs> that slavery doesn't count. I'm talking in a post-slavery America. I mean, that needs to be a caveat for everything ever. This country has also always been the worst. Um, but in addition to being always the worst, there have also been moments that have been pretty close to the best at times, at least globally. And I just don't see how we get there in this in this divided moment with this sort of scapegoating and vast inequality. It scares the hell out of me. It really does. Yeah, I mean, when I mean, we I see know, people so, right now okay. who are who are rising up, you know, with guns for the right to get sick, right? Because they want someone to cut their hair or whatever. And how do you how are you allowed to carry an how are you allowed to carry an assault weapon into a state house that's what confuses me i just think that isn't there like a thing where like okay you're in the capital that america <laughs> you can't like that just seems like your common sense like shouldn't that be not allowed i mean like i just seem in a basic sense like hey you know you walk in the state house you set your m16 down i mean like you know or maybe but I guess you just it, shouldn't be allowed outside of a military setting anyway just a crazy exactly law. right right exactly but, you know, yeah. but it does seem in these protests and this is you know a conversation i was just having with a friend yesterday it's like instead of feeling like the government should be protecting people from losing their lives the narrative is that the government should be permitting people to lose their lives instead of the government protecting people from potentially killing other people with the virus. The government should be permitting that. I mean, like this whole notion of what liberty is, that liberty isn't freedom from poverty, that liberty isn't freedom from illness, that liberty isn't freedom from struggle. It is the freedom to be poor and sick and struggle. There's something radically upside down about that to me. And I think that we have really twisted what freedom means in this country. Yeah, because I, th I think like, you know, there's a conception of freedom from, obviously, like freedom from constraint, freedom, but there's also freedom for. So like for like someone like Aristotle, if an eyeball is disconnected from the, from the brain, from the skull, like it's not free to do what it is. It needs to see. And so like you kind of so I think like we have this interesting kind of def deference to freedom from. Right. But but without a sort of equal kind of passion for freedom for like that, that people like someone like Camilla ought to be free for her gifts and agency and all these beautiful things she brings to the world. Like if that's something that if she can't exercise that agency, if she can't get out there and hustle and be herself and be a civil servant and be a mom and be a lover and a friend that, 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 that she is, that, that we, that's a, transgression of our civil covenant of freedom like that she needs to be freed not just from constraint but for living the good life and human flourishing right or freedom from want that yeah was, that was a big right. concept that we seem to have entirely missed entirely missed
and wanting freedom for our brethren and not just for ourselves. So what are you working on next? Like, what's your next project? And you're, and, and also like, just what's it like working in New York right now? Because you're, I'm not in New York. Um, I mean, I'm kind of, I feel like I, I wish I, I feel like I'm in New York at heart. I love that city and I've spent a lot of time there, but like it's, um, New York is in my thoughts and prayers every day. And what's it like to be in New York right now? And, and what do you, how, how are you staying sane? We've had a weird couple months. Um, I actually wrote an essay about it for the Paris Review last week. You know, I'm I read that essay. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm in a family of three. We've all been sick. We all avoided the hospital, luckily. Um, I had a no, scary we, night or two. You- do you, do you think you all had COVID? Oh yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. Sym- so, symptomatically. So yeah. We've all had COVID. You know, my husband's. A, Did you get tested? Did you get tested? Or? No. Um, I okay. over eighty percent of people have not been tested. Basically, the deal with testing is no matter you know we may we might have the best tests. Everyone could get a test. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. I mean, you can't get tested. The only <laughs> I love, way that I love when Brad Pitt was playing uh, Fochi on, on Saturday Night Live. He's like, "It's a beautiful test." Well, if beautiful, I don't know if I call it beautiful. If beautiful is stuffing something up your nose far up and swabbing it then i guess that's beautiful <laughs> yeah i mean you know i know someone who have brought their kids into er's who can't get their kids tested because they don't have the right number of symptoms i mean what it means even when you're in an er to get tested right now is is a fallacy um you know our symptoms were all really really clear it was really obvious what we had and uh you know a doctor was texting us saying unless you think you're about to die on the way to the er don't go there because they won't let you in and they won't test you. Um, So, you know, we've been sick and I've also been trying to figure out how to get this book's voice amplified in the middle of a a very, very busy and distracted time for media, for readers, etc. And so I would say getting this book out there and writing related essays and having conversations like this one, while I have a kid homeschooling and a news photographer husband who's out covering it every day, um, you know, he's outside hospitals, he's on the subway, he's at morgues, he's watching them dig the mass grave up at Hearts Island in the Bronx. I mean, he's been in it um, at funeral homes, which are just stacked with bodies. We have been in it. Um, and at the same time, it's it's quiet. There are bird calls and there used to be a lot of sirens. Now it's bird calls and occasional sirens. And, you know, you make dinner and you read and it's just, it's a very, very strange time. But I think it is for everyone. Um, and obviously I'm constantly aware how much more difficult this is if you're in a shelter, how much more difficult this is if you're one of 60% of Americans who doesn't have more than $400 as your own safety net, um, who's newly unemployed, who doesn't know how to pay the rent, who has a, a kid to support. It's, it's a very, very scary time. Um, so to tell you the truth, um, I think I'm going to be out reporting on that in short form um, once I sort of get through this book push. And then I don't know. I'm hoping that I'll get to do another book like this one where I can do this sort of immersion reporting and write narrative about something that I feel like people need to feel and experience in the world. But at the moment, I'm not quite sure what that's going to be. I think because I'm not quite sure what our world is going to be. Um, so yeah, if you, Scott, have any ideas, let me know. You seem like someone with a lot of creative ideas. (laughs) I just want you to stay healthy, stay alive because we need, 
your voice and um thank you so much um for writing this is all i got it's um it, i and tell you nobody will regret reading this um if you're listening it's it's a great and we're all hunkered down so if you want a story that is compelling but and and you know it's a page turner and it's a true story which is what's so engaging and enthralling about it but but also, I think it's 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 a mirror for all of us to to say, hey, who do we we want to be? And Camilla challenges her story. I think challenges us all with that question: Who do we want to be? You know. So thank you for writing it, and thank you for taking so much time to talk with me about it. You're great. It's been such a pleasure. I want to do it again. Invite me back. Absolutely, with Ed Wan. <laughs> with with Ed, with Ed, we'll be uh, discussing uh, together. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thank Lauren. you, Scott. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.